Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. You know when you are getting a sales pitch. Someone calls you on the phone and you go, oh, I shouldn't have answered that one. You can just tell. They're so sweet. Good morning, Mr. Campbell. How are you today? Oh, come on now. I don't think you care that much about me. You've got something you want me to buy from you. And they're going to try and have some type of pitch put together to try and get me to buy whatever they want me to buy or give to whatever they want me to give toward, whatever it might be. Not so much anymore. You used to have people come to your door, of course, and give you sales pitches. Not so much, thankfully, on that. But again, people want to lock you down to get you to buy something. they got different ways of tightening those screws. Increase pressure on you, make you feel guilty. They talk about time and how time is running out and you've got to get this. And you finally say, yes, in some sense, just to say, leave me alone. I'll do it. I'll buy it. This morning, as we begin to now kind of enter a new section here in Matthew 5, verses 21 and following, in this passage today, we have six, excuse me, the rest of Matthew 5, there are six commandments that are out of the Old Testament that Jesus is now going to discuss in relationship to him. And today we're looking specifically at how we treat others and specifically our anger. One of the ways to misunderstand Jesus today is that he is trying to get us, trying to lock us down into making a vow. We hear the sermon, we feel a little guilty. In our hearts we say, Jesus... I'm going to try better. I'm going to try more. I hear your sales pitch. I hear what you're saying. And I want to make that vow deep down that I'm going to finally deal with my anger and how I am so difficult to deal with. I'm going to be more patient. That's not what Jesus is really looking for. There's a danger of taking any of the teaching of Jesus, especially on the Sermon on the Mount here, and just look at them individually. And as you do that, it begins to look like a list. You think about them, and you try to remember them. It's like, okay, this is the list now. i got to make sure I do this list. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's always important when you look at this that you zoom out a, a good ways and look at the bigger picture in mind. Jesus, again, here is referring ultimately to the new covenant where God's law is written on our hearts. The work of the Holy Spirit based on the work of Christ, where we have a new heart and a love for God. Because in Matthew 22, Jesus is going to be asked, what is the greatest commandment, right? Which is, you shall love God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength. This is what this passage is about here in anger. It's about deep in our hearts that we would love God with all of our being and then Dealing with anger will just fall into place, and we will deal with it as God leads us to. Now, this morning, as we look at this passage, we could certainly psychologize this passage. I could give you a a psychological meaning, a message about anger. 
We could talk about roots of anger, causes of anger, how to manage your anger, how to control your emotions, and certainly there's room for that. But at some point, that gives way. Because as we know from the Bible, sin is a power. That's how Paul describes in the book of Romans. It's a power. And it's a power that you and I cannot manage. We try and do sin management techniques a lot of times, right? (laughs) Just manage our sin. Keep it from slipping out and going into public. We try and manage it and control it. Where Christ wants to kill it. And only he has the weapons to kill this sin because he has fulfilled the law and all righteousness, as we looked at last week. So rest of Matthew 5, again, beginning with verses 21, remind us of what God said through Moses. You have heard that it was said. We have that six times. And Jesus will keep on going and saying, but I say to you, or I tell you, focus on the word I. I now am going to expand and intensify what Moses previously said and correct misunderstandings that Israel has. Jesus is the enabler of his followers to obey him so that we now can fulfill the law, even terms here of this anger. Last, we looked at verse 20. Again, this greater righteousness that we need to have if we're going to be in God's kingdom. We've got to have a better righteousness. We've got to have more righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. Otherwise, we'll never see the kingdom. Again, this is because of a greater revelation of Jesus. Now, in Jesus and because of Jesus, we know better who God is. We know his character and his nature better. And that, therefore, demands a greater righteousness. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you're going to know God, really know God, The righteousness is going to have to be there. Jesus is giving us more revelation. As we respond to that, we grow in righteousness because God is holy. God is righteous, and Jesus is making us righteous and holy. And as we're given this revelation, then we grow in righteousness and holiness as well. Let me share two caveats here before we actually jump in here that are very, 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 very important. (laughs) Number one. This is not getting at somebody getting angry once in a while, sinning in their anger once in a while. Obviously, we're not going to be perfect. And sometimes we blow it and we get angry and and so forth, and that's going to happen. What Jesus here is addressing is our growth and our willingness to deal with our anger and how we deal with others and our character and are we growing in these things. This means that we are no longer hiding our anger and our sin. We are willing to admit it and address it. There's no more toleration of it. There's a recognition that only Jesus is at work inside of you and the winds have shifted. We know we're now going in a whole different direction because of God's grace to us in Jesus. And you, in some sense, are not forcing the winds. By God's grace inside of you, you are being graciously compelled to follow Jesus and love righteousness and to shun anger. So, yes, we're still going to blow it once in a while. It doesn't mean, oh, no, I got angry sinfully. I'm no longer a follower of Jesus. 
or accusing somebody else. You got angry. Oh, you must not be a follower of Jesus. That's not true. Second caveat. This is some general teaching of Jesus, and it's something like wisdom. We do have to be careful. We take some teachings of Jesus and instantly and comprehensively make them absolutes. Why would I say this? Because Jesus himself got angry. There is righteous anger. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about that. Now, it's hard for us because most of our anger is unrighteous anger. But there is a righteous anger, and it's hard for us as sinful people to find that right rhythm in that anger, but there is a place for it. In fact, in verse 22, Jesus says, you shouldn't call people fools, right? Matthew 23, verse 17, Jesus says, you scribes and Pharisees, you are fool. 23, 17. So Jesus, in some sense, violates his own teaching. How can Jesus do that? Because this is some general teaching about how we look at anger. And Jesus felt it was appropriate. We know he never sinned to address those people, scribes and Pharisees, as morons. That's where the word comes from. So the question becomes, we can't deal with this today, is when is it justified to be angry? And again, certain times there is a right way to be angry. And if we don't get angry at the right times, in some sense, we're sinning. There is a place for it. So when is it justified? Well, I think as we deal with this today in this passage, as we continue to seek the Lord and grow in our maturity, we'll gain wisdom. We'll gain wisdom. And when we blow it, God will point it out to the followers of Jesus. He'll show us. I don't think there's any just clear-cut things we can just say, but we'll grow in it as we continue to follow Jesus. So the main thought here today is this, that we are liable. We, human beings, we're liable to God's judgment for how we treat others, for how we treat others. This passage is focusing on how do we engage others, how do we treat others, and that is a huge way that we will be judged and evaluated how we treat others. So this morning, we'll look at three ways that Jesus expands and intensifies the law. Again, Jesus says, you've heard it was said, but I say to you. So how is Jesus adding or intensifying the law? I think there are three ways that Jesus does this for for his followers. Number one, Jesus' followers, this is what they do now in light of Jesus' teaching, not just Moses, but Jesus They're evaluating intentional anger as the root and essence of murder. Root and essence of murder. Verse 21, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, Quotation from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 13. And we know in the Old Testament that it's a life for a life. You intentionally kill somebody, you now ought to be intentionally killed, the death penalty. So judgment here, libel judgment means not so much determining guilt and giving a decision, but the death penalty. Now, I don't know about you, but when people start talking about murder, 
your ears kind of perk up a little bit because that's a pretty serious thing. Hopefully, the thought of actually taking the life of another human being, the thought of actually taking somebody out of existence of this life is horrifying to you. It's absolutely overwhelming. Some states still have the death penalty in place. North Carolina still does. But I'm hearing more and more language referring to the death penalty as a barbaric practice. Many people are taking it away. Many states are. That's not a surprise because in our country, again, we are losing our sense of God, our consciousness of who God is as the author of life and the giver of life. We're losing our sense of the glory of God in people made in his image. And so, yeah, you're going to take that away. Thinking about murder, though, you do become intrigued. Um, it be, kind of becomes the focus, certainly was probably for the Jewish people, and it kind of overshadows everything else. But what does Jesus say? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. These are some shocking words. Jesus says, someone kills another person, according to Moses, their life ought to be taken away. I say to you that if you are angry intentionally and unjustifiably with your brother, you ought to receive the death penalty. Wow. That's what I call a little intensification. Can you imagine that? There would be no Israel left, would there? (laughs) They'd be all gone if that's what Moses had said and made very clear back then. But Jesus says, really, the essence of murder is in the heart, where you are so angry with somebody that that is the roots and the essence of murder, just being angry with them. Now, in the Old Testament, it does talk about hating somebody in the heart. So sometimes we're under the impression that the Old Testament law of Moses never really addressed the heart. Well, it did. Leviticus 19.17 says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. So how is Jesus intensifying the law here? Well, Jesus teaches that in God's economy of sin and punishment, getting angry at somebody makes you worthy of death. And where this is all going here is, Jesus is not talking so much about the death penalty. He's going to slide over as we'll see here, and talk about God's death penalty. Not just what Israel did, but Jesus' teaching that God's death penalty now is what is owed you for being angry, unjustifiably. Jesus, again, is taking the great act of murder, breaking it down into its essence. The heart of murder is anger. It's that energy. Hateful energy directed against another. And I think this is not so much what we normally think of. We think of anger, we think of what? Screaming, yelling, hands moving, face turning red, just screaming at somebody. That counts too. But in some sense, probably the other kind of anger is more in some sense what Jesus is talking about here. The internal, quiet, seething, despising, 
undermining, slandering, quiet bitterness. That person might, might not even know that you loathe them in your heart. Jesus says that is worthy of death. So who's going to have a greater and better righteousness to be in the kingdom, verse 20? Those who reckon with this. Those who agree with Jesus and admit their judgment under Jesus and those who begin to hate their hate instead of hating others. Notice Jesus also talks about those who insult his brother. Again, the ESV takes that out and and if you see the footnote, it talks about raka. That's actually an Aramaic term there it's used, which means empty-headed fool. Okay? Trying to insult another person by name-calling. That's pretty popular today, isn't it? <laughs> All around us, in our culture, TV, politics, name-calling. Gloves are off. You can call anything to anybody that you want. In some sense, that is a reducing of their dignity. This is why Jesus is addressing this, because in that culture, as we all know, Jewish names were very important. Much went into that. Probably lots of prayer would say, what do you name this baby? And you give them their name. And then somebody comes along and takes this baby that you have in prayer. You say, God, what name do you want for this baby? And someone comes along and that person says, Raka trying to tear down and shred who they are and trying to, in some sense, change their reputation and who they are and how they are known. I think I've said this years ago here, but in our high school growing up, we were terrible for name-calling. I'm serious. If you were, ever saw a video of me and my classmates doing what we did to one another, you'd probably throw me out right now. We ripped one another to shreds. Sometimes it was fun. Sometimes it was just mean and nasty. And it's amazing if you continue to use a nickname for somebody over time, it's amazing how it stuck. And that's how that person was now thought of. You, in some sense, controlled their reputation and how they were known. This is why Jesus issues such a strong warning here. Reducing the meaning and significance and value of a person before God. Why do we get angry and hostile toward others? Because anger is being baked inside for two reasons. People don't think of us or don't regard us as we want them to. We know how people are thinking about us and we don't think it really matches who we really are and so we're angry with them. Or, second of all, they don't treat us as we think we ought to be treated. So, therefore, our anger is a frustration at not being able to control how people think of us, how they treat us, or how they regard us. Now, Jesus talks here about judgment, if you notice in verse 22. Then talks about insulting his brother. Then talks about the counsel. So, now we got judgment. Now we got counsel. Now where it says, you fool. And then talks about hell of fire. So Jesus could be talking about the seriousness of this and how it increases in its punishment. You got judgment, then you got the council, which refers to Sanhedrin, ruling body, and then you got Gehenna, you've got hell. Or it's possible to take these all as overlapping. I think that's what's being done here. 
So what Jesus is saying here is you're liable to judgment. And if you call somebody a fool or raka, you are liable to the council. Well, it's not necessarily the Sanhedrin, but I think what all is being said here is that there is a heavenly council in heaven. And Gehenna, final judgment, death penalty here is what Jesus is talking about. So question for followers of Jesus is, will you acknowledge your anger and your hostility for what it really is? Or will you continue to think and act as though it's not that bad? If you want something bad, you should have seen my dad. You should have seen my uncle. That was anger. What I'm doing, it's not that bad. Those who are followers of Jesus say, that's true of me. I've done that. I've acted like that. See, the question is, are we going to relax one of the commandments of Jesus? Remember verse 19? Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The temptation for all of us here this morning is just to relax it and say, you don't know my situation. If you knew my situation, if Jesus knew my situation, then he'd say, it's okay. Because we all want to relax the commandments. Just to kind of recline back a little bit easier and say, God's cool with this. He's not doing anything to show his anger. It must be okay. Are the reasons you're using to justify your anger now reasons that God will accept one day? I know the reasons sound good in your head. I know the anger tastes good now. But will it one day? Will your reasons make sense to God? Will God justify you for your reasons for your anger? Second way we see that Jesus intensifies Moses and the law. Followers of Jesus have a sensitivity to how they've offended others, to how they might have offended others. Now, it's one thing not to murder somebody or be hostile towards somebody else, but Jesus is calling for an aggressive kind of love and kindness towards others. That's all about having a sensitivity and empathy. Look at verses 23 through 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Notice, and you remember that your brother has something against you. You're going, wow, I think I've done some actions that probably offended that person. So what you're doing is you're imagining this. You're imagining how you heard that person, how they took that and say, wow, I can see how that probably went down now. You see how that is showing a sensitivity to others? You try in some sense now put yourself in their shoes. You're not just trying not to be hostile toward them, but you're actually trying to be in their shoes and saying, how would I have felt if that had been done to me? That's a real aggressive, good kind of love. We were for going for a walk the other morning with our dog, and uh, there was this car at the intersection by the school. And there was no stop sign there, but they had stopped. They were there for the longest time. It was kind of school time, so all the cars are coming up behind that car, and their car's not moving. Like, what's going down here? And we could see their head was down like this, and I like, hope they're okay. 
Then you got a little closer and thought, yeah, they're on their phone. <laughs> they're on their phone. They're oblivious to how they're holding up people behind them, and they don't even care. Finally, somebody honked, and they kind of waved them through, and they just kept on going what they were doing. Hmm. Our society tells us today, do your thing. Try not to get in the way of others, but if others have a problem with you, they just need to deal with it. People need to respond to me and look out for me. If they don't like it, too bad. How different is that than Jesus, what he's teaching? Try and do everything possible. Say, I wonder if I hurt somebody. I wonder if I did something. As opposed to, I'm here, move around me. And that's really getting to be our culture today. I'm the center. You move around me. If you think I'm in your way, tough luck. Just deal with it. For whatever reason, our culture today, maybe it's increased technology, increased loneliness, how we're emotionally separated from other people because we only know people mostly through our screens. It's just easier to be harder and tougher and rougher and meaner with others. Wouldn't you say? We can develop the attitude where we say, you know what? This now is the law of the jungle. So if you can't beat them, just join them. That's your temptation. When we live in Chicago, people drive fast in Chicago, right? 80, 90 miles an hour and people take off. You say, well, if that's what everybody else is doing, I'm going to do it too. People are going to act this way and treat me this way? Well, I'm going to do the same thing because I'm not going to get run over. Jesus is teaching us to care about what our actions mean to others, our actions and the words that we say. Four times here in this passage, it says the word brother. I'm concerned about our brother, brother or sister. It can mean both. Here it's in the context of worship. We are not just a loosely related bunch of people hanging out together on Sundays. We have family obligations to love and care for one another. Another temptation with this is some people are a little more mentally tougher than others. You know what I'm saying? Some people are just mentally tough. They've gone through hard things, and a lot of little things don't seem to bother them. And the problem is that those people can expect others to be the same level as mentally tough as they are and say, they should just buck up. Come on, that wouldn't bother me. And then expect others to be just like you because you are strong and mentally are tough. What's wrong with those weak people out there? Or we could actually be mature followers of Jesus. There is a difference in our maturity of followers of Jesus, right? Some are more mature than others. And those who are mature could say to those who are less mature, come on, let go of that. Don't be so sensitive. Don't you know Jesus? Can't you trust him? And we can push hard on those who are immature, maybe even new believers. As followers of Jesus, we don't demand that others be like us. 
we are in some sense like Jesus. We reach out and we reach down as necessary to help people. We might be tougher mentally in a good way. But Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. We might be more mature in Christ. That Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. We're trying to be like Jesus, aren't we? Third and last way, as far as of Jesus, Jesus, that we understand how he has upped the law in some sense, we have a determined decisiveness to remedy offenses in light of judgment. Determined decisiveness. We're going to take care of it because of our offenses that we've done. We want to make sure we get those done right with others, how we've offended them, because we know that judgment is coming. Moses did speak of judgment. We've already talked about the death penalty. There were other judgments, like being put out of the community of Israel. That was a tough one, right? You got put out. There were some tough penalties there. But now with Jesus here, Jesus already told us that with his coming, the kingdom is here. The new age that the Old Testament predicted has now come and has begun now in Jesus. And that's, on the one hand, really good news. This is the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. We can now be saved because of the cross. We can know God's mercy and grace in a much greater way. But also that means that judgment is also at hand. And if you have caused offenses to others, you better remedy them because time is running out. And for those who understand this, they know the times, they are determined and decisive because they love the Lord and they fear him. Two ways here this determined decisiveness is shown. First of all, by having a priority of reconciliation over religious expressions. Priority of reconciliation over religious expressions. Again, 23 through 24 Again, we have this example here Jesus talks about. You're offering your gift at the altar. You're in the temple. And there you remember that your brother has something against you. You are, according to Jesus, you're to leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is really, really a hard teaching by Jesus, isn't it? Imagine all these pilgrims that come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. Again, if you were up in the northern part, you can't just go somewhere and offer sacrifice. You have to come to the Jerusalem, right? So you're from Capernaum, wherever it might be, and you travel all these miles down there, and you brought your animal, or you bought your animal, whatever it might be. You got your knife. You're going to slaughter the sheep. And all of a sudden, bam, you remember that you've offended somebody. You say to the priests, wait, I'll be right back. Levites are singing. Other people are making sacrifices. You say, wait, I've got to go take care of this. They're like, what? Where are you going? You can't just leave. What are we going to do with your animal? No, I'll be right back. And now you walk miles upon miles, okay? No, no airplane, sorry. No air-conditioned car. You walk miles and miles, and you go find that fellow Jew that you've offended. And you make things right. You say, I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? And you hug and maybe give a Middle Eastern kiss and you make things right. Then what do you do? 
You walk back all those miles to Jerusalem and say, I'm back. Okay, let's do it now. Because now I can do it with a clear conscience. So then you sacrifice that animal. And then what do you do? You walk back home again. That's a real inconvenience. I got a solution. I'm sure Jesus will understand. I'll offer the sacrifice, and then I'll go take care of it. Because I'd save time and money and energy. Great idea. I'll take care of it when I get back. I'll go find Joe, and we'll fix it. No, you won't. You will not do it. You will make promises, and you'll make vows, and you'll break them. Jesus' command is do the inconvenient thing and go take care of it no matter how humiliating it is to everybody watching you and you make sure you're reconciled to others. Then you do your religious expressions. Jesus is talking about something very inconvenient. Is it worth it? Again, I would ask you, should we relax the commandments of Jesus? Whether or not we are reconciled with others based on what we know that we've done is the most crucial thing for acceptable worship. The most crucial thing this morning for our worship today is not how you're dressed. It's not if we like the songs. It's not if the people who are up front led the songs well or not. That was not the most crucial thing. The most crucial thing is right now, are you reconciled to brothers and sisters? Are you right with people? That is the first thing that determines whether or not what you did here today actually went through this roof and made it to heaven. That's the only thing. It'd be far better to skip church, not show up and have people call you and say, where were you? Well, actually, I was being reconciled with somebody. It'd be better to do that than to show up at church. This whole idea of relationships with people having priority over doing religious expressions is found throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It would take a long time to bring them all up. And what's going on here is what we already saw in the book of Isaiah. 700 years, nothing has changed with Israel. They've gone into exile been humiliated before the nations. They've been brought back, got their temple reestablished, and guess what? Their hearts have never, ever changed. They are still hard-hearted. This is what Isaiah said back in the day. You know these verses, hopefully, very well. Isaiah 1, 12 through 17. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, 
correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Faithful in worship. That's what they were. Lawbreakers with others. And the Lord is saying, oh, please, not another worship service. I can't handle listening to more singing when there's blood on their hands, when they're at odds with other people, they're thinking villainous thoughts against others in the pew and they're singing. And the Lord is pleading, saying, please, just shut the doors. I can't do it anymore. We have to see spiritually what is going on. The spiritual reality is not the physical reality is going on around here. So we ask ourselves, what is actually going on here this morning in this room? Is this acceptable worship to God? What's going on in the churches around here? I'm scared of this. I'm frightened of this. Because when I hear of people bickering and fighting and gossiping and not talking to people and avoiding people, and it goes on all the time in our churches, I'm going, what does God think of this? We might think we had a great worship service this morning. And God may have said, I'm turning my ears away from that church, and I'm going to listen over here to this church. The reason this stuff goes on is because there's a lack of love and a fear of the Lord. There is a day of evaluation coming, and to us, most time, it seems like a dream. I mean, who of us can imagine that one day we're going to stand before Almighty God and give a report of our lives? I can't even hardly fathom that. My legs are shaking now as I stand before you. God seems not to give me signs of displeasure with me. I think he hit by the tornadoes last night that hit other people. God must be okay with me. Please don't think that God is obligated to give you a sign when his word is so abundantly clear. Why would we ask God to disregard his very clear word and ask for a sign or be looking for a sign where not we're right with him? He's not obligated to do that. Unfortunately, it's our hard hardness that makes us think that God is deaf and dumb that God will just look the other way. And that's exactly what he's doing. Second way here that we deal with being determined and decisive is passionate, humble pleading with others for reconciliation. 25, come terms quick with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over the judge and the judge the guard and you'll be put in prison. I'm going to cut this short and how I'm going to explain this verse, but... Some people think this is now kind of dealing with Gentiles and people outside the church. Previously, you got the altar and the sacrifice. That's kind of like your fellow believers. And now you're dealing with outside the church. I don't think that's the case here because I don't think we can settle our accounts with unbelievers because they do accuse us of wrongdoing. And Jesus does warn his followers that you will be sent to the courts and they will judge you and they will kill you. We, we can't fix those accounts. So I don't think this is actually talking about a real situation. I think it is a parable. It's a parable. What's the point of the parable? Come to terms quickly. Notice here the urgency. 
Someone's going to the court. They're going to tell the judge about what you did. You know it's real. You know you're going to be condemned. And you're pleading. You're walking around. You're walking with that person on the road. You're saying, please stop. stop, Just stop for a second. No, just stop. I admit to you. I did steal your horse. I took your cow. I was desperate. I will take care of it. And according to the law, I will give you restitution. Please don't take this to courts. Please, while you're on the way and people are watching you and listening to you and you are humiliated, no, you take care of it right now. You be urgent about it. You make reconciliation with others. So we let the others know that we're not trying to get around this. We're not arrogant. We're not just trying to find ways out of it. We're admitting and saying, yes, have mercy on me. And hopefully by this time, You've asked God for mercy. God, I'm sorry for having taken that cow. Would you please forgive me? And what Jesus is saying is, now if you're going to make sure that's real between you and God, you have to do it with those that you actually offended. We don't mind sitting at home, praying to God and asking for forgiveness, but going to somebody else, That's what makes the prayer to God for forgiveness real. That's what makes it real. That's what makes it authentic. It's easy to do with the Lord, but it's hard to do with others. And the Lord says, you're going to obey me? You take care of this with others, and then this will be a done deal with me. So the question is, are you determined? Are you decisive to take care of these matters in your life? You might say, well, in time, <laughs> I'm busy. I got a lot of stuff going on. I'll get to it. I ask you the question, how much more time is there? The clock up there says 11.35. I need to quit pretty soon. But what time is on God's clock? Anybody have a watch that has God's clock on it? We don't know God's time. We have no idea. Judgment's coming quick. Take care of matters now. Those who really believe Jesus, they'll say, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to take care of it. We have a very serious threat in verse 26. Troy, I say to you, you will never get out of prison until you've paid the last penny. There's other threats like this in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is very serious about this. Prison. I've taken many people to prison before. I've taken many people to jail, which isn't quite so serious, but I've taken many people to actually prison before. That's not a fun thing because people are going to be confined, held there. You ever been confined somewhere and didn't like it and wanted to get out but you couldn't? Causes a lot of panic, doesn't it? I mean, just even thinking about some of that just makes me panic. I'm a little more claustrophobic, I think, than I used to be. <laughs> I think about a small space and feeling confined. And I want to panic. I don't know exactly what eternal punishment's going to be. But I know there'll be a sense of confinement to people. And they will panic and they will want to get out. 
and that will really pale compared to 15, 20 years. A man just died recently, I saw the news. Longest time in solitary confinement, 38 years. I don't know how you would not go insane. Jesus wants us to take this very seriously. Unfortunately, we don't take it seriously. So we, we listen to what Jesus teaches and say, okay, you say I'm never going to get out of prison? I need to reckon with this. We have freedom in Christ. We need to go and take care of these matters. And in this freedom, enjoy what we have and act on it before it is too late. Jesus is looking for followers who will act on his word. You've heard that it was said to those of old, but now I'm saying to you, I'm here now. Listen to me. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for the grace now to do what your word says. We just got done, got finished with the easy part. It's easy sitting in class. Now we have to go work on the project. And Lord, we all are unable to do this. We all are fearful. But Lord, I pray that we'd fear you far more than we fear others, what others might think of us. We pray that we would shun that fear of others and we would grow in our fear of you. It's better to look less before others and to be more before you. So Lord, I pray that we will treat you as holy and regard you as holy. Lord, we believe that you are real, you're the greatest reality of this world, and that one day we will be for you. We'll stand right before you. And Lord, we ask you for mercy right now, just right away. Say, Lord, if you'd want to condemn us for any one offense, you'd have a right to do that. And we just ask you, Lord, have mercy on us. And Lord, whatever we're responsible to do, help us take care of it. Let there be nothing left undone in our lives, Lord, we pray. For your namesake. Christ's name, amen.